I know it's easy to feel like you've tried everything in therapy, but here's a quick way to check that. If you feel like you give better advice to your friends or your family members when they're struggling than you give to yourself, that means you haven't tried everything. Because it means there is some quality ideas, some things you know would help, that you're telling other people to apply to their lives, that you're struggling to apply to your own life. So no, you haven't tried everything. And that's a good thing. So just so you know, I am very rarely the first therapist that somebody sees. The vast majority of my therapy clients, whether they're in individual or group settings, have seen a lot of therapists before. I am usually somebody that people come to when they are feeling stuck or struggling with more traditional therapy methods. And so I see a lot of people who feel hopeless, and I see a lot of people who probably feel like they have tried everything. It's something I hear a lot from them. Sometimes it's something they tell me their therapists have told them, which really makes my blood boil. I'll come back to that in a second. But I built this niche in my practice pretty early on. So when you're a therapy intern, it's hard to get clients at first because no one knows who you are yet. You're, you're new, you don't have any experience and nobody's asking for you by name. So you join a, a practice and the way you get your first set of clients is that current therapists in that practice or med providers or, or whoever may work there, they refer people to you internally. And they usually refer people to you who they feel kind of stuck with because they figure, you know, a new approach, a fresh set of eyes might help. Usually the people they refer out are their most difficult clients. And I, I hate that phrase, but that's, this is just internal language that gets used sometimes. And so, like many interns, I had a early caseload of people who had a lot of experience being in therapy and who were probably pretty like, I, I don't mean this in a negative way because I totally understand where they were coming from, but people who probably felt pretty jaded or like disenchanted with the therapeutic process in general. And I was able to really help these people in a way that no one really anticipated or expected. A um, little bit of self-disclosure here, I think the main reason I was able to do that is I, I honestly related to them. Um, I understood their feelings of hopelessness, I understood their frustration, I understood the fact that they didn't think life was going to get any better for them because I had been there. And I think a lot of my colleagues, I, I know a lot of my colleagues didn't understand that because a lot of them straight up told me like, I don't understand this person, I don't get why they think this, I don't, I don't know why they feel this way and in these, you know, case consultations or team meetings. I would often speak up and I would say, I do understand that. Like, I have felt that. I have been them, you know, or my own version of them anyway. Uh, send them to me. Let me give it a shot. Let me see if I could help them. And I typically was able to. There's a term in mental health that I hate. You might be gathering that there are a lot of things about my field that frustrate me. And that is very accurate. But there's an acronym uh, called SPMI. It stands for Severely and Persistently Mentally Ill. In other words, people who, it's not an official term or diagnosis, it's, it's just something that's used informally, but people who are considered to be SPMI are essentially people who, like, we don't think we, I'm making air quotes if you're listening to the podcast because I'm, I'm also rolling my eyes, we don't think that these people are going to get any better. We think that the best thing we can do for them is maintenance and safety. Make sure they don't get worse, make sure they don't like ruin their lives and keep them from hurting themselves or in some cases other people. That is not my ceiling or my goal for anybody because I think there's a time in my life when people would have put me into that category and people would have said, he's not gonna get any better. I, I know that there's times and 
no one expected me to, to make anything of myself or have a good life in any measurable way. So I know that label. And I, most of the people, maybe, I'm going to say all, everyone I've ever actually worked with who was given that label, we've made progress. Usually substantial progress. So it's come to be a term that I really despise. And when a therapist puts that label on somebody, it affects how that therapist engages with their client. So if you are, if you're a therapy client and you feel uncertain or you feel ambivalent or, or you even feel pretty hopeless or pretty pessimistic that you're ever going to get better and you get paired with a therapist who also doesn't think you're going to get better or a therapist who is complacent or bored or just not that passionate, I think that is the absolute most dangerous combination that happens in professional mental health because it's not a bad enough fit to be an obvious problem. It's not like this therapist is abusive or causing harm or anything like that. They just aren't doing anything. And so the client assumes this is therapy. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is as good as it gets and they aren't getting any better and they assume the problem is them and they feel that they're stuck and hopeless. And those are the people that I often end up seeing. If what I've said so far sounds a little bit like you, there's a few things I want you to know. And this might sound a little harsh at first, but, but bear with me here, I, I'm going somewhere with it. You barely even know yourself. And I don't mean that in, in a rude or dismissive way. I mean, you are an incredibly complicated being. And what you know about yourself so far is just what you've been. That's all you know. You know what you've been, which is not necessarily a great indicator of who you can be. If you were to magnify your brain by a thousand percent, make, make your brain a thousand percent bigger, and like, I know this is physiologically not plausible, but like shrink yourself or something like that, so you could like walk around inside of your brain. What you would see inside your brain is something that makes the Milky Way galaxy look simple. You have 100 billion neurons, which I think is roughly similar to, I'm not an astronomer, but I think that's about how many stars there are in our galaxy. But each of your neurons, you know, stars are just independent. They're all just up there doing their own thing, right? Neurons don't physically connect to one another, but they communicate with, with one another through neurons and synapses. So you'd see what looks like the night sky on a super clear day out in the country except there's these little pathways between every star or every neuron and certain neurons communicate with certain other neurons and don't communicate with certain other neurons. So there are these pre-established pathways in this galaxy inside your brain, right? To say that a person has tried everything, to say that a person is like, you know, we've exhausted treatment options for you or this is as good as it's going to get, whether it's you saying it or a therapist saying it or a psychiatrist saying it, is akin to saying, we've tried to connect all 100 billion of these things in all of the, I think it's 10 trillion, I, read, I googled it, in all of the 10 trillion different ways that these things can be connected. And we've tried all of those and none of them really changed anything. I hope that when you hear me say that, you realize what a ridiculous statement that is. And again, I'm not saying that to be mean or rude, I'm saying that to prove to you that there is still hope for you because there is no way that you have done that. You have not even done 1% of that. Even if you have been working your whole life on your mental health, you have not even tried 1% of those options.
And I say this as somebody, again, who I, I am very rarely a person's first therapist. I'm usually their 10th, 15th therapist. I've worked with people who have been hospitalized 10, 20, 30 times. I've worked with people who have been institutionalized. I've worked with people who have more suicide attempts than birthdays. And all of these people, when they start to configure things in their life correctly, they all start to show improvement. Let me give you one more example to show you just how ridiculous it is to think that, you've, that a person has tried everything and that all options have been exhausted. Think of a list. Think of the top, just the top 10. Let's simplify it. Top 10 most influential factors in your mental health. What would probably be sleep, relationships, living environment, physical activity, nutrition, medications, thoughts, boundaries, assertiveness, and career or school or your, your uh, whatever your like professional long-term endeavor is, okay? Say those are your top 10. Take one of them. Let's take sleep, for example. Think of all the variables that make up a person's sleep. Bedtime, wake time, mattress, pillow, location, lights, sound, um, pets, door open, door closed. So those are all like, again, those are like the macro variables, right? Those are the big ones. Take one of those. Let's take sound. Think of all the different options there are for the sound of your sleeping environment. There's no sound, white noise, nature sounds, relaxing music, televisions, not a good option by the way, but I'm just laying out options. Like, and within each of those, okay, so take nature sounds. So we're in, we're in our fourth category now of one thing, okay? Within the realm of nature sounds, there are thousands of options that might affect a person's sleep quality. You've not tried all those. You have not even exhausted all of the options in one micro category of one macro category of your mental health. And I'm saying this because I want you to realize that you're not done in a good way. I'm saying this because I want you to realize there are things you have not tried and that's good. That's very, very good news because it means that there is still hope. So let me give you two practical ideas that you can hopefully take away from this content to help you find your next steps because I know that I'm, I know that I'm making some big claims, maybe even promises, and your ability to follow through on these to some degree depends on your support network. I do think people who fall into the SPMI category are going to need a really strong, experienced, and robust and passionate, that's maybe the most important one, treatment team to help them make this kind of progress that, that I believe they're all capable of, that I was capable of. So the first is at any given moment in your life, this, this is gonna sound extreme, but just bear with me. At any given moment in your life, there's a question you should be able to answer. If you really want to get better, if you're dug down deep in a hole and you need to get out of it, you should be able to like, not literally, but figuratively stop time at any given moment and ask yourself, what is the purpose of my current behavior? And if you either don't have an answer or don't have a good answer, then you should change your behavior. Because if you are someone who severely struggles with severe mental health symptoms, it is more or less going to need to be the focus of your life to improve them. It's going to be your full-time job. It's going to be your calling in life. It has to be, it has to be if you really wanna make progress. Real talk, it just does. And so you should be able to do that at any time 
And if the answer either is like, I don't know or nothing, or if the answer is something that has nothing to do with your mental health or worsens your mental health, then that is your cue to change the behavior. The second thing I want you to consider is, this may not apply to everybody, but I'm betting for most of you who are listening to this, it will. There is often one thing that a person knows they should be doing or knows they should be trying that they have barely, if ever, even started. Usually because they're afraid of it. Sometimes it's challenging and addictive behavior that they haven't even acknowledged that they have to very many people. Sometimes it's processing a trauma that they haven't even acknowledged to very many people. Sometimes it's working on a relationship. Sometimes it's talking about a memory that there's for so many people I've worked with, there's one big thing, like they've tried all the peripheral things to some degree. They've at least played around with all these other types of therapy, all these other ideas, but there's this one central thing that they have never even touched because they're too afraid of it. Where Anything that holds that much power, anything that holds that much emotion is going to be a huge part of your mental health journey and you should not be ignoring it. In fact, I know you're gonna, you're gonna hate this, you're gonna hate to hear this, but sometimes it is my job to tell people things they hate. That's probably where you should start. That thing, whatever that thing is, that you're like, oh, I don't even wanna, don't even wanna touch that. I don't even wanna acknowledge it. I will do anything but that. Do that. Do that and see what happens. You will hate it at first, but you might be shocked about how far you get from it.